0: Why don't we go ahead and find our seats, and we'll get going here this morning. I want to start with a brief announcement. Um, I'm Zach, by the way, if you're new here, one of the pastors here at The Vine. And we have um, a new, well, it's new to some of you, Um, there's a new large beard in our congregation. I don't know if you've noticed. He's right over here. You could lose a small child in that beard. Uh, ben, wave your hands. Uh, this is Ben. You'll see his beautiful family on the screen here. Um, ben is the, yeah, let's give him a hand. So, Ben and Nikki, uh, you see them on the screen here, uh, are going to be, God willing, planting with Michael and Heather sometime in 2019. And so until then, though, he's going to be helping us with our music. That's his background. Uh, he's got a lot of skills, but music is one of them. And so he's gonna, you'll see him up on stage a lot more. He's um, with us now until they plant. And so just go out of your way to welcome them. Let's do that as a Vine family. Let's, uh, even if you're new, that's okay. Uh, we're all part of the family here, so go out of your way to welcome them and, uh, we, and pray for them and ask how you can uh, be a blessing to them, and that will really bless them Anytime you're in a transition it's hard, you know? And so let's let's uh let's meet with them in that and make them go out of our way to make them feel welcome, okay? We're glad you guys are here. So thank you. Uh if you have a Bible, let's open to Exodus 33. Let's open to Exodus 33. And as we're doing that, let's 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 pray. Father, we come before you this morning humbled that you say that you inhabit the praises of your people. I'm thankful for the singing that we just participated in. You say in Ephesians 5, that's evidence of your spirit among us, that we would sing. And I'm thankful for the way that your people here sing. Lord, we want to come underneath the authority of your word this morning. I do, we do, and you promise that you work through your word, your spirit is alive in your word, your spirit inspired this word, and so would you help us to see it um, as a joy this morning for our blessing, in Jesus' name, amen. Well, let's just dive right in here, Exodus 33, starting in verse 1. Go up to a land flowing with milk and honey. So stop right there. This is awesome. This is not awesome. God, do you see what's going on here? God is saying to his people, this promise that I gave to your fathers many centuries ago, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, it's coming to pass right now in you. You get to experience this massive promise given hundreds of years ago, and you're walking in the fulfillment of it. That's awesome. I promise the land, and you get to be a part of seeing me in actual t- space time and history, experience the, uh, the enacting of that promise. That's cool. And, and check out also what it says. "This land is not a land of crusty, dry bread and spoiled, dirty water. That's not what this is. This is a land of check it out. What does it say in verse three? Look at it. What's it say? Milk and honey, those are good things. That's, that's, that's uh, code words for this is a great place to be. This is blessing. But things go poorly real quickly in the second half of verse 3. But, look at what it says, I will not go up among you lest I consume you on the way, for you are a stiff-necked people. So what is going on here? Awesome stuff, horrible stuff, all in the first three verses. So we got to know the context. Two weeks ago, if you were gone, check out the MP3. Michael preached a great sermon on Exodus 32. And Exodus 32 is one of the worst chapters in the Bible. And the basic problem was this. God's people betrayed the God who miraculously saved them from Egypt. Betrayal of the highest order. They grew impatient with their circumstances. Can you relate to that? And decided that it would be better if they just ignore all of God's promises, all of God's word, all of what he said, his commands, namely the command to not have any false gods before them. And they just said, you know what? We're just sick of waiting around. And this false idol that we can taste, touch, construct, feel, it's physical. God's more spiritual. We want something physical. We're not going to wait in around anymore. So, you know what? Let's just build a, a false God. And they get together with Aaron, who's supposed to be their worship leader and supposed to lead them while Moses is talking with the Lord. And they get their gold together and they pile it up and they build this uh, fake idol, this calf, this golden calf. And Moses comes down the hill from the mountain and he calls Aaron to account as the leader. What the heck is going on? And one of the most, uh, it's kind of hilarious, but it's just like foolish verses of the Bible. Moses says to Aaron, what happened? And Aaron's like, I don't know what happened. They just gave me their gold and I put it in the fire and out came this calf. Like ultimate blame shifting and just like, I, I don't know what happened. I'm, I'm, ultimately, I'm the victim here. That's what Aaron says. And this is a huge deal. This is ultimate betrayal. It would be like your wife or your husband cheating on you two weeks after your wedding ceremony. That's what this was like. Can you feel that? And as you can imagine, this kind of scenario has consequences for God's people. And the consequences are in view here at the beginning of of chapter 33. But before we focus on that, I want you to feel this. I want you to take note. There is judgment here, verse 3. I will not go up with you. But amazing mercy. There's this mingling of mercy and judgment here in 33 that you'll see all throughout the Bible. Look at what it says. He says you're going to have a verse 2 fulfillment of the promise I gave you to give you a land I God will be faithful to my promises even though you are a wicked people and have have committed spiritual adultery of the highest order I will still be faithful to my word in some sense my faithfulness is not contingent on your obedience and he recalls his words to Abraham I'm not going to go back on my promise I'll be faithful to my word I will keep my word. Now, there's still consequences, but I'm keeping my word. And he says, I'm going to send an angel before you. I'm not going to go with you, but you'll have an angel. You'll have like a lieutenant. You won't have a captain, but you'll have a lieutenant. And in verse 3, we see that this mercy again. They can go. But there's mercy. Look at what he says in verse 3. Lest I consume you on the way. Essentially, he's saying, I'm I'm going to protect you from myself. I love you. I don't want to consume you. But if this keeps happening, Exodus 32 style keeps happening, you will simply be consumed by me because I'm a God of justice. But I'm also a God of mercy. So you're going to see both here. So God knows their hearts and their sin demands judgment. It's better if he is far off from them. Remember that, that language of being far off. It's better if he's far off from them so they are not wiped out by him as a consequence for their desire to betray him and their selfishness and faithlessness. But I want you to feel the grace and mercy here. Because a lot of times what we hear when you hear people describe the Bible, they see Old Testament like God's going to go all Old Testament on them, meaning judgment. Judgment. And as if the New Testament has no judgment, it's just all mercy. And that's just a lie. There's mercy and grace all over the Old Testament, and there's lots of judgment in the New Testament. Have you ever read the book of Revelation? So I want you to feel the mercy here in Exodus 33. And if you've been tracking with all that's happened in the book of Exodus, you can feel it. All of the miracles in Egypt, all of the miracles in Egypt, that's just sheer mercy for God to rescue his people and judge the enemies of God's people. you got Pharaoh and, and his armies defeated. You've got this protection from, as they're, as they're wandering in the wilderness, heading to the promised land. They've left Egypt, heading to the promised land, and there's foreign armies that want to kill them. And they're not, one, they're not knowing for sure where they're going to get food and water. And God just sovereignly provides them food and water, apart from their effort. And there's direct communication from the God of the universe to his people. And he gives them the beauty of his law to guide them and show him his heart and how they can be a shining light to to nations around the world that don't know Yahweh as God. That's all grace and mercy. God didn't have to do that. And then Exodus 32 comes along and you have spiritual adultery of the highest order. Worshiping a false god after all of that has happened. You cross the Red Sea, and you're now you're going to worship this calf that you made with your own hands? Like, that's as illogical as it gets. Sin is always illogical. See, this is grounds for divorce from God to his people. But he doesn't do it. Yes, there's judgment in taking his presence away, but extreme mercy and provision that God still grants to his people. He could have sent them to a land of crusty dry bread and dirty water, but he doesn't say that, does he? You're still going to have a land of milk and honey. He could have scrapped everything and started over. He's already done it once with extreme wickedness at the beginning of the book of Genesis and he just goes to this guy named Noah and says, Noah, I'm just going to sovereignly choose you in my love. And everyone else, judgment. They are wicked to the core. We're starting over. He could have started over after chapter 32. and He doesn't. You can still have this land of promise. And I will be faithful to my word of promise I will be a God of serious integrity. There will be a consequence. Verse 3, I will not go with you. There's mercy, but there's also sadness. And that's what we're going to see as we continue in this text, the response of the people. Look at verse 4. When the people heard this disastrous word, think about why this would have been so disastrous. Put yourself in their shoes. All throughout the book of Exodus, the key to them thriving is the presence of God with them. When we saw with Moses, Moses is like, I can't talk, God. You're going to send me the most powerful man in the, in the world? I can't talk. And you're calling me to talk to him and to say, let my people go. And, and what does God say? I will go with you. It's all about presence. It's all about presence, right? That's what it's been this whole way. And so, of course, this is a disastrous word, Right? So what do they do? What does it say? It says they mourned. Verse four. And no one put on his ornaments. For the Lord said to Moses, say to the people of Israel, you are a stiff-necked people. That just means, that's another way of saying stubborn. You know? Like if you if your dog's doing something dumb and you grab him on the neck, you know, my dog hops up on the counter and I'll grab her by the neck. No, you cannot have an inch like stiffen up. It means like, I'm not going where you're taking me. I want this food on the counter. That's what this is like, right? You tighten up like an animal, and you're not going to go where I want to lead you. You are stiff-necked people. If for a single moment I should go up among you, I would consume you. So now take off your ornaments that I may know what to do with you. Therefore the people of Israel strip themselves of their ornaments from Mount Horeb onward. Okay, so what's this language of ornaments? We see it three times in these... Three verses. And and, and God says, take off your ornaments. See that in verse 5? And we read that they stripped themselves of their ornaments. No one put on their ornaments. What does that mean? This is just God calling them to repentance and them enacting a symbol of repentance. Taking off their ornaments was just a symbol, an outward symbol of an inward reality. So here's the deal. like Just like we do in our culture, this is a cultural thing for them. In our culture, if something tragic happens in our nation, we put the flag at half-staff. That's an outward symbol of an inner reality of national grieving. I'll always remember, I don't know why I remember this, I just always do as a, as a, as a sign of, of grieving. Um, when Kurt Cobain committed suicide when I was in high school, one of my friends was a huge fan of Nirvana, and the next day he dressed in all black because he was so sad Because his favorite band would no longer be. That black clothing is an outward sign, darkness, of I'm feeling dark on the inside. Outward sign, inner reality. And in the same way for ancient Israelites, if you put on anything beyond just your plain clothing, like jewelry or anything like that, that was an outward sign of being happy. Very similar to like, ladies, if you are going to a party— Or a dance or some, you know, like if you're in high school and you go to the prom, you you get all dolled up and you put on a nice dress and earrings and makeup. That's a symbol that you're, man, we're going to go have a party. And that's a good thing. And we're going to be happy. It doesn't look like you're headed to a funeral. And so all this is saying is the ancient Israelites wanted to display that they're not having a party. They're not happy. And they do that outwardly. That's what this language is all about. So what do we have so far? We've got God brings mercy in the midst of previous sin. He didn't have to. He just grants sovereign mercy to these people that he says that he loves. But also judgment. And the judgment is that God is not going to go with them as they go and inherit this land of promise. And the people respond as they should. And they repent of their recent foolishness and folly and display in their physical being repentance. Well, let's look at what happens next. We're going to get to see... A front row seat to Moses' relationship with God. And that's what the rest of the chapter shows us. So let's take a look here. There's much here for us. Verse 7. Now Moses used to take the tent and pitch it outside the camp. Far off. There's that language of being far off again. Take note of that. Far off from the camp. And he called it the tent of meeting. I'm sorry, and when all the people saw the pillar of cloud standing at the entrance of the tent, all the people would rise up and worship, each one at his tent door. Thus the Lord used to speak to Moses face to face as a man speaks to his friend. When Moses turned again into the camp, his assistant Joshua, the son of Nun, a young man, would not depart from the tent. Okay, so what do we make of this? This might be a little confusing, okay? because there's some things here, that language we don't understand. But the first thing to take note of is this, verse 7. This language of the tent of meeting. Now, what could be confusing for us is a few weeks ago, Michael preached a sermon on the capital T tent of meeting, or what another, um, another synonym would be the tabernacle. And if you flip forward just a few pages to chapter 36, 37, 38, just glance over it, 39, you'll see instructions for how this capital T tent of meeting, tabernacle, was to be constructed. And this was the place where God would come and dwell among his people for the sake of their worship, for his presence among them, okay? But that's not what this is. That that had not yet been built, What this is, is a small t-tenta meeting, kind of like a little pup tent in comparison to that. Just a place where Moses would meet with God as the mediator, okay? So, and and note that this is far off, okay? This is far off. See that in verse 7? He's not right in the midst of them. That's coming later. But God is not completely removed from his people. That's the good news. He's far off, but not all the way gone. He's far off. And the mediator can still go and meet with God. And we see that here in these verses. The appointed mediator between God and the people, Moses, still has access to the presence of God. See that in verse 9? They would speak. God would speak with Moses. So God's people still have access to God. There's mercy. He doesn't just disappear, but there's also judgment. He's far off. And they could worship, but only from afar. Like they would all have to stand next to their tent. Now, what's this language of tents? Well, they're a mobile people right now. They have not landed in the place where they're going to live. That was God's plan in their land of promise and be permanent. No, they're in transition out of Egypt in the wilderness now, heading to the place where they're going to stay. So they all live in tents. And they can stand at their tent. They can't go over to where Moses is, lest God consume them, like he's already said. But they can stand far off, and worship, okay? So again, we see judgment and mercy. Judgment and mercy. So you might be wondering what went on in that little tent of temporary pub tent compared to the tabernacle, tall, uh, capital T, tent of meaning? What happened in there with Moses and God? What did they say when they, when they talked? Well, we get to see a snippet of a conversation. Let's take a look. This is, this is fascinating. Verse 12. Moses said to the Lord, say, or he says, See, you say to me, bring up this people, meaning they're going to inherit the land of promise. Bring them up into the land. But you've not let me know whom you will send with me. Yet you have said, I know you by name and you have found favor in my sight. Now, therefore, if I found favor in your sight, please show me now your ways that I may know you in order to find favor in your sight. Consider, too, that this nation is your people. So we read in verse 11, if you look at it, that the Lord and Moses would communicate with each other directly. And that's what we see right here in verse 12, 13, right? Right? So let's look at the first thing that Moses says in verse 12. Basically, he says, you said that you're not going to go with us and we get an angel instead, but I don't know anything about this angel. You've not let me know whom you will send with me. He just wants more info. That's pretty bold, right? We can still go, and that's mercy, but you're not going with us. We get an angel instead, And, and Moses just wants to know what's up with that. There's a directness here that's quite unique in the Bible. You feel that? He would like to know more. But there's a second thing that I think is very instructive for us. God calls, think about it like this, God calls all of us, Moses and everyone else, he will call you to unique things that are probably over your head. And Moses, the unique thing that he was called to was to lead these thousands and thousands of people into the land of God's promise. And now God says, we saw it right away, it's go time. Do it. Go. Lead them. Take the land. And Moses models here a thing, in light of that, that's really a great, mo- uh, a great model for us. See in verse 13? He just says, God, I just want to know you. I want to I know you, you and your ways, like apart from you, I can do nothing. I got to have you or I, I'm i sunk. You feel that? You see what he's saying there in verse 13? I want to know your ways. It's just like saying, I want to know all about you. Because apart from my communion with you, I've got nothing. I saw it with Pharaoh. I can't talk. You showed up. Somehow this thing works. This plan works. But it's only because of you, God he's just doing that again. He's like, God, I got to have you. I got to know you. I got to be with you or this plan. is not going to work. That's how he's praying. Give me your mind. Without your mind, I'm sunk. I've seen the past how apart from you, I can't do a thing. So Moses speaks and asks God rightly here. And then just for good measure, as a good mediator, look at verse 13. He says, and also for these people, consider to God That this nation is your people. Meaning, God, I'm not just asking for myself. I'm asking for them as their mediator. You've said that they are your covenant people. He's just praying God's promises. God loves it when you pray his word to him. Right? These are your covenant people, God. You said so yourself. God's mediator here interceding for his people. you got to go with us, God, all of us. Well, look at how God responds. Verse 14. And God said, and he said, My presence will go with you, and I will give you rest. Well, we don't have uh, you singular and you plural is the same in English. But like in other languages, like French or Spanish, or in uh, Hebrew, you've got a word for you that's singular and a word for you that's plural, like y'all. Well, we do have y'all. Or some people say you guys, right? Um, And so, but but here in this verse, unfortunately for Moses, it's the singular you. It's not y'all. So he doesn't answer Moses' prayer right here. He says, I'm going to go with you, Moses. Just you, singular you. Twice there in verse 14. Well, Moses, like the persistent widow that Jesus taught about, he doesn't give up. He doesn't give up. Verse 15. Look at verse 15 with me. And he said to him, Moses talking now, praying now, If your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. For how shall it be known that I found favor in your sight, I and your people? Again, he's just praying the promises of God. Is it not in your going with us so that we are distinct I and your people from every other people on the face of the earth? Like Moses just experienced chapter 32. He knows that these people that he's been called to lead are not special. They're not uniquely holy. They don't have their act together. They're idolatrous, wayward people. So how are they going to be distinct from all the nations of the world? That's their calling is to be distinct. And like, well, they're failures in their holiness. So what do we got, God? What we've got is you. That's what he's saying here. You're the only thing that makes us distinct. These people are just as idolatrous as the nations around us. What's the thing that makes us distinct, God? It's you. It's you, God. God, you have to go with us. That's what he's saying. Verse 17. And and God responds. And the Lord said to Moses, this very thing that you have spoken, I will do. Why? Well, He gives a reason. For, or because, since, you, Moses, have found favor in my sight. And I know you by name. These are amazing words spoken by God to Moses, are they not? God answers Moses' prayer here as as mediator, as intercessor for, for the people. Moses is the mediator between God and his people. You see that? You feel that? God says he's pleased with Moses, and as a result, as the leader, as the covenant head, this pleasure that he has with Moses gets transferred to all the people as a sheer gift of mercy. See that? Didn't have to do it. He just says, the credit that you get, Moses, I will transfer to all these people as well. Does this not foreshadow in dramatic fashion what we would see many centuries later? Jesus comes physically to the earth and to be fully united to the people that he created to be a new people of God. He gets baptized like they would have. And as he emerges from the waters of baptism, a voice from heaven, the voice of the Father says, this is my beloved Son, and the translation could be, he has found favor in my sight. This is my beloved son. I am well pleased with him. He has found favor in my sight. And it's the same exact thing that we see in Exodus 33 that happens for Christians today. If you're a Christian here today, know for sure That just like in our text for today, God's people are saved because of the Father's pleasure in his appointed mediator. Jesus, perfectly holy, God finds pleasure in that. Jesus spoke all the truth all the time. The Father finds pleasure in that. Jesus did not fear his enemies and perfectly trusted in the provision of the Father. God finds pleasure in that. The Father finds pleasure in that. And so, guess what? If you're connected to the mediator, you get all the blessings of the mediator. That's the gift of the gospel. The perfect spotless lamb never sinned credited to you. You feel that? God's people back then didn't deserve or earn the favor of God. You see that? They were simply given it as a gift because God chose to receive the prayers of Moses, the mediator, and they were given favor as a whole because the mediator was favored. God just simply decided to do it that way. Well, look at how this works for us in the New Testament. Look at what the Bible says, Romans eight thirty Who is to condemn? Those people in Exodus 33, 33 deserved condemnation, but it was removed. Why? Because of the mediator. Same thing for us. There's no condemnation. Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised. Your confidence is found in the resurrection. That's what Paul's saying here. And he's now seated at the right hand of God with all authority. And what, is, what else is he doing? He's interceding for us. Another way of saying he is the mediator for God's people. Is that not good news this morning? Right? If you want to know that God is pleased with you, you can know that. Some of you walk in here with a weight of guilt and shame, and you think that you know, maybe because your physical earthly father was abusive to you, or you could never live up. that's how your heavenly father views you, and that's not true. He is pleased with you. He's pleased with you. As much as he's pleased with his own son, the father is pleased with you if you are in Christ. If you have come to Jesus in faith and repentance, turning from your sin, turning towards Jesus, and saying, Jesus, I need you. I got nothing. I'm so needy, and I see that you're willing to receive me, and I'll take it. If that's your position this morning, you can know that God is pleased with you. And that's good news. And in light of that, you can't leave here this morning with a weight, uh, 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 just this backpack of guilt and shame that, that, that that you carry with you and weighs you down. That's not what, you don't have a right to carry that anymore. Jesus says, I'll take that. I'll take that from you. See the cross, see the empty tomb? Yeah, that's my job to carry that now. It's done. And in fact, I'll take it, and then I'll set it aside, and we'll never see it again. And what's that? That's mercy. So what does that do? Well, that changes my heart. The Father is pleased to accept you because of Jesus, the mediator. So guess what now? The book of Hebrews talks all about this. And he says now, because of Jesus, the mediator, Exodus 33, what are the people? Far off. But because of the mediator, what can happen now? Look at what Hebrews says. It's Hebrews chapter 4. Since then, we have a great high priest. What's a high priest? It's just a mediator. We have a, it could be translated, we have a great mediator. And, and Hebrews says earlier, before this, that, that Jesus, man, he's better than Moses. He's the final, perfect, ultimate mediator. Better than Moses. Don't be all wrapped up in Moses. Be wrapped up in Jesus. That's the point of the book of Hebrews, one of the points. Since then, we have a great high priest, better than Moses, better mediator, who has passed through the heavens. Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. So don't give up. Jesus is the real deal. You don't have to question it. You don't have to doubt. Hold fast to what you know is true. But we don't have a high priest or mediator who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. So he's perfect. You can trust him. He's the perfect mediator. So now, here's the point. Let us then with confidence. What does it say? Draw near. We're not far off. We're not Exodus 33, far off. We draw near. We draw near now. And not with, with um, in one sense, we fear the Lord. And, and, and in a sense, you know, in the grandeur of God, there is zero arrogance. And there's, there's, a, there's a quivering lip and, and, and trembling knee in one sense, yes. But also, what does the Bible say? There's confidence. You can come near. There's not a hint of arrogance, but there's still confidence. Why? Because of Jesus. Because we know it's true. We're holding fast to our confession. We can with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy. So if you know you need mercy, come to Jesus with confidence. If you know you need help, like it says, if you know you need grace, if you know that you're needy and you have a time of need, draw near. Draw near. Jesus says, come. You don't have to stand far off in fear. Come. Because I'm here. And I paid for all your sin and the tomb is empty as a historical fact so come near you don't have to wear that that clothing of shame now i'll give you some new clothes perfectly white they're my clothes and as white as my clothes are you wear those too and that's how god sees you so don't 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 stand off in fear draw near draw near so up to this point what have we seen We've seen judgment and mercy in God's people for their horrific idolatry. We've seen God's appointed mediator, Moses, intercede for God's people. God is pleased to receive the prayers of his mediator. And as a result, by continued faith in the word of God through the mediator, God's people are kept safe. It's true in Exodus 33 because of Jesus. It's just and even more true now for us. Well, Moses, he's got some more praying to do. And I want to show you how his praying ends up. In verse 18, and this is how we'll close. Look at how he, he prays here. Moses says, he's not done. He's, he's prayed pretty auda- aud- audaciously, and now he's even ramping it up. He says, God, please show me your glory. It's like I, he's already prayed, I want to know your mind. I want to know your ways. But now I don't want to just know things cognitively. I want to see things with my eyes, and I want to see you, God, that's what he asked for. It's audacious. And it's amazing. God gives him a yes and a no. Look at it. Verse 19. And he said, I will make all my goodness pass before you, and will proclaim my name, proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But, he said, You cannot see my face for man shall not see me and live. And the Lord said, Behold, there's a place by me where you shall stand on the rock, and while my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft of the rock, and I will cover you with my hand until I pass by. Then I will take away my hand, and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. So he just gives Moses a glimpse, right? Like just a peek, like just peels back the curtain just a little bit. See, a full vision of God would have destroyed Moses. A finite, sinful person cannot see all of God's glory and not be crushed by it. But, but God says, I'll come down to your level just a little bit. And you'll just see a little bit. And, and I think this might be speculation. I know it's speculation. Um, but I just wonder if this is why Moses ended this section right here like this. Because words could not describe what he had seen We don't get a description from Moses of all that he saw, even the glimpse that he saw. No words. God's glory, just a glimpse. Words don't suffice. But if you jump to the New Testament, we do have words that suffice for God's glory. And this is where the the progressive revelation of God should stagger us that we have it. Because look at what it says about seeing God's glory. The glory that Moses asked for. The New Testament talks about. John chapter 1. You'll see it on the screen. And the word, Jesus, became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his what? His glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father. Divine glory. Glory. Full of grace and truth. Later in chapter 14, Philip said to him, said to Jesus, Lord, show us the Father and it is enough for us. Let us see God is what he's asking for. We want to see God with our eyes. And Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen the Father, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Like, I'm here. How can you say, show us the Father? You're looking at him. Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? See, what Moses asked for in chapter 33 was made manifest in a more dramatic way in the coming of Jesus to this earth, in physical time and space, in actual history. The glory of God seen in Jesus. The glory of God in the most dramatic fashion that the world has ever seen happened in history 2,000 years ago for 33 years in the person of Jesus. So you want to know the God of all? You want to know the glory of God? Look to Jesus. Look to the pages of the New Testament. See Jesus. Believe in Jesus. Come to Jesus. He was the glory of the Father for 33 years in physical space, time, and history. But where does that leave us now? Where does it leave us now? Because we don't have physical Jesus with us anymore, do we? It's been 2,000 years. We don't have the glory of God with us in the same way. But we do still have the glory of God. What does the Bible say? We have it in the church. It's supposed to be in the church. There's a lot at stake for how we do church. See, God's people are still called to show that we're distinct from all the other belief systems in the world, just like Exodus 33. And God's people are still called to draw near to God's mediator with listening ears of faith, just like Exodus 33. And God's people are still called to show evidence of God's presence is with us. The glory of God's presence is still with us. How do we do that? Here's how we do that. Now that Jesus is not physically with us. The church is physically with us in the world today. The Bible says that the church is Jesus' body in the world right now, filled with Jesus' spirit, alive in our hearts individually as believers and corporately together as God's people. So how is God seen now? There's a lot we could say, but let me show you one place. 1 John 4. You want to see God? Well, here's what John says. No one has ever seen God, but if, if we love one another, there's a type of scene. God abides in us, and his love is perfected in us. You want to make God known in history, in in, in real time, with with eyes to see? John's writing to an ancient church in the Middle East somewhere 2,000 years ago to these disciples, and he's just saying, your relationships are a big deal. If they're hateful, it doesn't work. There's no glory of God. But if they're loving, they can see God. Your relationships in this gathering, there's a lot at stake there. How can an onlooking world make sense of God if they see people hating each other? But what is the promise? If God, if we love one another, God abides in us. He dwells with us. He's united to us. We're connected to him in a vital way. That's what abiding means. If we love one another well, the manifest presence of God can be seen in the beauty of our sacrificial, laying down our life for one another type relationships. So I want you to feel this. There is a missional evangelistic purpose and power in how we conduct ourselves, just maybe even on a Sunday morning. Like your conversations in the lobby, if they can go beyond just a nicey-nicey superficial thing, and they can actually get down to the level of really loving each other with honesty and vulnerability and transparency, if we can do that, and that looks like something, and how we actually conduct ourselves together, man, that, that, that makes the onlooking world go, wow, there's some glory in this place. I want to know about that glory that's alive in those people. How you conduct yourself with your spouse, your family, maybe in your neighborhood, and there's a unique, loving, sacrificial, neighborly love, and and your neighbors look around and they go, man, there's something unique about those people. I want to know more about that. It seems pretty, what's the word that some people would use? Glorious but it's got to be, I'm just convinced, it's not just going to be a nicey-nicey, let's talk about the weather. It's going to look like Jesus. And what does Jesus do? He lays down his life. But if people in your neighborhood see that kind of sacrificial love, they might say, man, there's glory there. i got to know more about that glory. They love really well. They love really well. There's something to that. And they're going to see God in the gospel. See, we don't have physical Jesus, but we have God's people who are indwelled with his same spirit. That's what the Bible says. The same spirit that rose Jesus from the dead lives in us. So if we're going to be distinct, like Moses said about God's people many centuries ago, the Bible says we have to be people of love. Now, some of you could leave today and just feel burdened by what I just said. Because you haven't been loving. I haven't been loving, as I should. And you might be thinking, man, I just, oh, I got to get my act together, and this feels so hard because these people in my neighborhood, I don't even like them that much, or these people at church, they're kind of annoying me. How are we supposed to do this, right? And it just might feel heavy, like, I, I don't know what to do. But here's the deal. You have the power to get after this and do it well. Why? Because of our identity. What does the Bible say? Does the Bible say, be loving and just get after it and do more, try harder? No, the Bible says, remember who you are. You are one who has been loved. That's who you are. You don't have anything to prove. It's a fact. It's a done deal. God demonstrates his love for us in this. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Do you know that? Do you believe that? Well, then you know that you are one who has been loved. You are one who is loved. You have a heavenly father who loves you. That's your identity. So if that's true, if you've been loved this much and you really see it and know it, you do have the power to be loving. And in this way, if you know who you are as a loved one of God, the God of the universe, you will have this love spill out of your life. So it's not doing more and try harder. It's just remembering who you are. Man, if I really get the gospel that God laid down his life for me, to spare me, to give me, man, I'm an Exodus 32 type adulterer just like they were. I wouldn't have done any different. I'm not more spiritual than those people in Exodus 32. I would have joined them. I have joined them. And God has given me mercy. And he said, I love you. Come to Jesus. Jesus is the way that you can know me and have relationship with me. If you know that, man, that's going to change your heart. That's going to blow your mind. How can we look at the cross and hate our neighbor? Right? That's the logic of 1 John. How can you look at the cross and, 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 and be a gossip and be, and be greedy and, and, and to just fail to pour yourself out? No, you look at the cross, and you're like, oh, my goodness, this is so amazing. And I feel it changing my life right now. So we just return to who we are. You are a recipient of love. So what does that mean for your life? If you really get it, it's going to look like something. And when you fail, you repent. And we start over. Let me finish with this. This talk of the presence of God being in the church through our loving relationships. I don't know about you, but for me, in some sense, it feels a little bit like a letdown. And I I, I mean that respectfully. But here's what I mean, like Exodus 33, show me your glory, hide in the cleft of the rock hidden so I don't consume you, but I get to show you a little glimpse of peek behind the curtain, like that's pretty cool, right? And like loving in the church, that just feels kind of normal, right? We just got to love each other, blah, 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 right? I've heard it a thousand times. Well, it's not just normal, and and if we do love each other, man, that's evidence of the Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace. That's supernatural stuff, but I'm not going to talk about that. What I want you to, I want to close with hope. I want to close with a vision. Like, like, loving relationships doesn't feel like this big, dramatic thing that I can see, feel, taste, touch, tangible, like Exodus 33 sounds like, right? But that day's coming. That day is coming. A day is coming when it will be visible, when it will be ours, when it will be taste, touch, feel, tangible in a way that we don't have right now. What does the Bible say? Look at it. This is 1 John 3. Beloved, we are God's children now. Well, that's good news. That's your identity. You have a heavenly father now. That's good news. And what we will be, future, future future-oriented, what we will be has not yet appeared. All right, so we got our our hope fixed on something in the future. That's the essence of Christianity, future-oriented hope. But we know that when he appears, he's coming, he's coming back. When he appears, we shall be like him. Why? Because we shall see him as he is. Is. It won't be just peel back the curtain like Moses had. It will be all of it. Hold on in hope. Hold on in faith. Hold on in trust. That day is coming. We will see him as he is and we will be like him. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this word and would you help us hold on in hope and faith and trust in who you are and what you've done. In Jesus' name. Amen.